Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today we have got Andrew Gutman. Do you know that name? You might. Uh, He made a lot of news recently as a dad at one of these Tony New York schools, Breerly. It's an all-girls school uh, on the Upper East Side where people like Tina Fey, Drew Barrymore, and Chelsea Clinton, pardon me, (laughs) have their daughters enrolled. Um, I'm not her fan. I just, I I prefer the mother to her. Anyway, okay, I'm, I'm off on a tangent. Andrew has a daughter at Breerly, and he pulled her, or he's going to. And he went public in a scathing letter to all 650 plus parents at Brearley about why he did it and what they needed to be paying attention to and how bad the critical race theory indoctrination had gotten at that school. And he was promptly attacked and essentially blown off by the head of school. Um, One of the students at the school wrote a piece accusing him of doing things he didn't actually do in the letter. The board has done a collective shoulder shrug. And all these parents who underground support Andrew so far have been deadly silent about it, which is just wrong. And we'll get to that, too. Um, Wait until you hear what they're doing to kids at Brearley when it comes to COVID, too. It's insane. We've lost our minds. So Andrew's sort of lifting up the veil on what's going on inside of these schools. And as you know, sadly, it's all too infrequent that a parent is willing to do this because it's, you know, it's your kid. You don't want to do anything that's going to compromise their ability to get into a good school or make their teachers like them or have the administration turn against them. It's it's a scary thing to do. So I give the guy guy credit and uh, we're going to get to Andrew in one second. But first, this. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you for doing this for me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. So let me start with your humanity. Are, is it scary? Is it, is it because I know it's not easy to talk about this stuff? Look, I, no, I don't mind talking about it. I think yeah, the first few days after the letter came out was, was pretty stressful. My wife and I didn't really eat or sleep for about five days. Uh, and we never expected this to happen, what happened, that the letter would get this attention. But no, I'm pretty comfortable talking about it right now. Okay. Um, so you sent the letter dated April 13th. And just so our audience they, they know the general background um, knows, but Brearley is a, is a top, top school in the United States, never mind New York. And it's very competitive and very rigorous. Um, and we know this because our daughter is at a similarly rigor- rigorous and competitive girls school right down the road from Brearley. And we looked at Brearley, too. And in, let's just start at the beginning. It's, it's, it's a golden ticket to get into one of these schools. It's wonderful. They, they're really competitive. They're really freaking expensive. And it's it's hard, especially when, because I think your daughter is around our daughter's age, right? She's a fourth grader right now? She's sixth grade. Yeah, she's 12 in sixth grade. Okay, she's 12. So, uh, and we have a fifth grader and we have a fourth grader and, and a first grader. But my point is, especially back then, right now, I think it's a little less competitive because people have left New York in droves over COVID. But back yes. then, I mean, when you get an acceptance from Brearley or, you know, where we go, Spence or Collegiate, yeah. where my boys were, it's like... Yes. Right. Because it's just like, yeah. you know, your kid is so lucky. They're going to get this amazing education. And I think most parents are cognizant of how lucky that is and, and what a what a one percent situation that is. And the schools do a good job of trying to bring in underprivileged kids as well. So it's not all one percenters in there. But I'm just talking about not every kid in, in America gets to go to a school like Brearley. Right. So, no, I will tell you, I mean, the, the 
admissions process, and for the people that like yourself that have gone through this in New York know this, this was the most stressful fall of my wife and I's lives ever. We, we actually had applied to 12 schools um, because we were not super wealthy. We were not well-connected. Our preschool, that we were at a small preschool that was not really a traditional feeder preschool. And so she, the advice we were given was apply broadly and we did that. And, uh, you know, you're sort of having three events at all those schools over a period of, of two months, three months. It was incredibly stressful. Um, and yes, so when, when uh, we were very lucky, my daughter you know, did well in the process. We had a bunch of choices. We chose Greerly because we thought it was absolutely the best education that, that she could get. Um, and, and there's some other terrific schools like the ones that I know your kids go to that are, that are equally good. Um, but, you know, we love Greerly for, for the education. Yes, exactly. So, so just to set it up, because most parents in New York go into these schools completely hopeful and feeling very grateful to be there and just thrilled. I mean, I went to public school, so it's like, uh, I did can't believe, right, that my kids are going to yeah. get this education. I'm like following along with their homework so I can finally learn all the damn things I was never taught. <laughs> I have no idea how you, how you multiply fractions, honey. Hold on. Let me look at this YouTube video and I'll get back to you. <laughs> Well, the math, I don't know if you got, if your schools use the Singapore math, which is very different than the way we know we learned it back, back in the day. We, we don't, our schools do not use Singapore math. Um, but I, I love that, that scene in the, uh, the latest Incredibles movie where the Mr. Incredible played by voiced by Craig T. Nelson is like, they changed math. Why did they change math? <laughs> it's like Those of us who barely hung on to it the first time are like, oh, now I'm really lost. Exactly. No, I know that scene. Yeah. So anyway, okay, so so she's in Brearley. Life's going along great. You're living your life. Is she your only daughter? Or do you have other children? She is an only. Yeah, she is. For better or for worse. Okay. And she starts off in kindergarten. So she's a, a, at the point you wrote this letter, had been a, a lifer at Brearley. Yeah, yeah, all seven years. And, and had you been enjoying Brearley prior to this? Yeah, I, look, I, I think it, it, look, there's still aspects of it that are very, very good. I, I think it was a very, very good school. You can always nitpick. I mean, there's no perfect school out there. You know, I have some pretty strong views on education and curriculums. I'm a little bit, um, you know, not mainstream. So you can always nitpick a few things. The math was 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 one thing. But um, yeah, we were happy. I mean, it's a nice community. Uh, we made nice friends there. She made nice friends there. I think the teachers are terrific. Uh, we never really had any issues with the administration until you know, very recently. Um, and we, and I'll tell you, we're not the sort of, you know, the PETA pain in the ass families. Um, right. we, we, we are not, I mean, we, in the seven years until, you know, this last year, there was, we have one meeting with the, with the school, the head of the lower school about something. Um, so, you know, yep. there are parents I know that call weekly about stuff and that's not our family at all. So yeah, we were, we were happy. Um, some of the anti-racism and diversity stuff started creeping in a little bit. And, you know, we were very cognizant of that. My daughter was cognizant of that. But yeah. we were happy uh, at the school. I, I A year ago or so, you know, pre this and pre-COVID, uh, there was every assumption that she goes K through 12, that she yeah. would stay here for the full 13 years. Totally. Mike and Andrew, I totally relate to this. This is how I felt about my kids. So yeah. loved our schools, loved our communities. Still, you know, my Closest friends in New York are all from my daughter's school. 
And we, we had communities in these schools that we really loved and I still love. I still have very close friends at both schools and love the administrators too and the teachers. The teachers were amazing. And yes. I really felt like as this started to emerge, this shit was being forced on them. It was being, it was coming from above. Yes, some of the teachers, as we saw in that Dalton letter with all the, you know, 110 signatories are completely committed to radicalism in, in some of these pockets, but a lot of them aren't. And just yeah. want to teach normal yeah. subjects without seeing everything through a racial lens. Um, Absolutely. Okay, so so you're there. I I can totally relate. I was ideologically, I think, in the same place you were. Like, love it, great, lucky, things are good, move on. Yeah. And what was? Do you remember the first thing that caught your attention? Of well, that's that's not just annoying. That's actually potentially dangerous and deeply problematic. And now suddenly. I, I got to start paying attention in a way I kind of wasn't before. Yeah, look, I think, again, I, I think some of these things were creeping in a little bit and and not just on on the anti-racism, on other issues, um, you know, really. And, and I know, you know, you've experienced it also, uh, uh, you know, single sex schools, um, really very, very much uh, about empowering women and feminism. And, you know, there were discussions in, about, I had with my daughter about some of the history and social studies curriculum are, you know, are you learning about any, you know, males? Are you learning about any white males? So this is, goes back <laughs> for years. So I think, you know, the antenna was, you know, the, the antenna was up a little bit because they did do in fifth grade, for example, with American history. They've changed this now a lot in the last year, but, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the colonial period and the American revolution and the constitution, um, so, so some of this stuff was sort of getting the antenna up, but this was a night and day change uh, in the last year since George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Um, it just feels like a complete switch. And I know you had, you know, I listened to your podcast a week or two ago with, with Paul Rossi, the, the Grace Church math teacher. And, and he, you know, it was interesting to hear him talk where he said that they, this was really in the works at his school for, for years. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't appreciate that. For us, and I think I think you had the same reaction when, uh, you know, about a year ago with with again George Floyd and BLM. This is when this orders of magnitude got ramped up, uh, yes. and that's where it said, "Wait a minute, what is going on here?" Well, I would say um, certainly a, a collegiate. It started earlier than that because about a year prior to George Floyd, a group of black students had written an open letter to collegiate, raising what I thought were some legitimate issues. I was like. I get this. I see where they're coming from. They're like, there aren't enough black students here. There aren't enough black faculty. And can we work harder to improve some of that and improve some of the awareness of the issues that those of us who are here and are very clearly in the minority are feeling? It was it was fine. I mean, I think most people, I don't know of a single person who wasn't legitimately like, I like it and I'm into it and, and let's help. And Khalid started to do more things to sort of like take that into account. And uh, our, our then fourth grader was learning about the American Revolution. And he came home and he was like, he could name 12 black people who had helped in the American Revolution, which we were fi fine with. But then I asked him, I'm like, did they mention George Washington? Yes. <laughs> the answer yes. was no. And, and Thomas Jefferson? No. I, I know. <laughs> we have same reaction, same exact reaction. Um, I, I, that's the one thing. If you ask me, you know, where, where were you critical of, of really curriculum wise? Um, more than anything else, and I didn't really articulate this to the school, but it, it's sort of the history and civics curriculum, which I think personally is the most important thing that kids should learn in school. And it's probably the academic subject at all schools that gets the least amount of attention. 
But for us, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it was also, you know, yes, they're, they're learning not about uh, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Um, for uh, Really, it was also, you know, women. And again, that's not, it's absolutely worth learning about. I, I, I agree with what you said. I don't think there's anybody in any of these schools that say, you know, don't appreciate diversity and, and don't learn about more than just the dead white males. Right. No one yeah. disagrees with that. But, you know, I've said this a lot is, look, you know, you want to you want to teach civil rights. OK, you want to teach Martin Luther King. Absolutely. But you can't understand Martin Luther King unless you understand Abraham Lincoln. You can't understand Abraham Lincoln unless you understand Thomas Jefferson. You can't really understand Thomas Jefferson unless you really, you know, look at the you know, ancient Greeks and Romans. Um, there has to be context. And I think these schools, mm-hmm. uh, you know, have completely lost. And this is the, I, I agree with you. This predates BLM and George Floyd. Um, they've completely lost the context in, in teaching history and, and, and civics, or we don't teach civics at all. Uh, so I agree with you. Well, and now, and now Joe Biden's got a push to add civics. Like there's a, there's a bill actually yes. making its way through Congress to push for civics back in the classroom. I was like, oh, great. I like civics. We need that. And of course, the, it's not about that at all. It's trying to push the 1619 Project Correct. and the teachings of Ibram X. Kendi. So no, right? So it's like the, the push by the Biden administration and the Democrats right now in Congress is not to push civics. They want to push this far left agenda. Uh, or I don't even know what there's far left. It's far woke. It's it's dishonest, woke agenda. It is. And to yeah. the point you just made, um, just to tell the audience, Howard University, okay, Howard University, which is, it's the greatest, I think the greatest black university in the country, right? It's, it's um, yeah. you know, traditionally black, yeah. it's a black institution, and it is now going to ban the study of the classics. They yes. want to get rid of the classics. And Cornell West, Professor Cornell West, and uh, a co-author, Jeremy Tate, just had a really good piece on this in the Washington Post saying um, that about U- Howard University dissolving its classics department, um, saying how a- a- alarming this was and talking about how MLK, that that he he was reading Socrates. He mentioned Socrates three times in his 1963 letter from Birmingham jail, that to to dissolve the light of the wisdom that preceded us just because these guys weren't exactly enlightened on issues like gender and race is absurd and it's damaging to our young people, but they won't listen. But anyway, so if it's happening at Howard at the university level, it's, you know, it's not particularly surprising that these younger institutions, you know, dealing with K through 12 are doing it too. Yeah. So I'll, 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 I might be jumping ahead and I apologize for that. Um, but so so a, a really senior wrote a rebuttal to my letter, which which was sort of publicly talked about. And it was very nice. And she wrote very well. And I commend her for that. And she stood up for her school. But what the, the main point she was really making, and I think she sort of missed the point of my letter, which was we still teach Latin. What is he talking about? We still teach Latin in high school. I am very well aware that they still teach Latin in high school. The question is, will they still teach Latin in high school next year or when my daughter's in the upper school? And I actually commented on on something she wrote and said, listen, if you're really interested in this topic, you got to look at what's going on in the lower middle school. You can't just look up what's going on in the upper school where, you know, there's there's more limit to what they can do to the curriculum because you've got your AP classes and things you have to do for college. But the broader point, yeah, we're 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 at danger. And this is a much bigger point of of you know extinguishing the enlightenment here if we stop teaching the classics. Uh, if we stop teaching history, this is this is a much broader point, but this is incredibly dangerous 
what is going on. And that, yes, that the Biden administration is putting this at the forefront. And you know, one of the you know things that uh, on their policy about education is terrifying, to be frank. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, on the AP classes, they're teaching them for now. But there was I just tweeted out an article the other day. I think it was Virginia um, and a school district there abolished AP classes. And and we're seeing a push for this in more and more schools. That was one of the things that the Dalton students were demanding. Uh, the school either gets complete parity between black and white students on AP classes or the AP classes get eliminated. Now, I will full disclosure at my public school. I never took an AP class. I didn't even know what that was. I was <laughs> I don't think I could have done it. If I, but my point is, I see a lot of smart kids who could who can do it, and and that includes a lot of smart black kids and equal parity among everyone. I mean, are you kidding me? Can you imagine if we did that for all groups? Like, what about the Irish? My people, we had discrimination against us, horrible discrimination back you know, hundred plus years ago. Let me tell you, I never would have parity with some of the black and white students that I see now in my kids' schools. It's just people are different. Right. But so they're going to get rid of AP classes in the name of, quote, equity. And the classics have to go because, you know, Socrates and and Plato weren't evolved enough. They weren't woke. And we don't mention George Washington, you know, general, then general George Washington, when we're talking about the American Revolution. So you decide finally, after this explosion in the wokerati inside Brearley to write this letter. What had you been doing prior to that? Because had you been talking with other parents or how is it growing? Yeah, so so I thought about writing the letter at the beginning of the school year, or writing something like this, because um, I could see the writing on the wall here. Yep. I decided. Look, we, I know, and I said this in my letter, and I believe this even more given the reaction. More than half the parents were very unhappy with the direction of the school, and I still, and I believe very strongly that's the case. More than half. Okay, based on what? Why do you believe that? Just talking to people. Just talking to people about this. We were. Forced, although we refused to sign a community agreement, a pledge about this anti-racism, among other things, uh, that we would not only teach. This is the beginning of the school year, actually, the, uh, before the school year even started, uh, and they didn't want to let my daughter in unless we signed it. And we can talk what? about that if you want. Yeah, I don't know if yes, you had. I, don't I know want. If you guys had, Did you guys have some kind of pledge like that? No, they did not okay. require. I mean, I saw when Brearley made it mandatory that parents applying their children had to affirm something about yeah. aligning with Brearley's ideology on on all this stuff. But I didn't know the existing parents had to sign a pledge. Yeah. Yeah. So so prior to the school year starting on Labor Day, I think it might have started a little bit late because of COVID, I forget. Uh, we were supposed to sign a community agreement. One of the parts was about anti-racism. Not only, and I don't have the exact wording, but not only are we going to support this in the school, but we will help teach and support this in the home. So this is uh. full on indoctrination. Wow, we pushed back on that, and uh, and 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 so I I sent an email to the head of the middle school because they kept reminding us you have to sign this, you have to sign this before the first day of school, and finally I sent an email saying, well, are you not going to let my daughter in school if you don't sign it? So finally we got on the phone, and he was you know he really wasn't in the power to make a decision. He had to run it up the food chain, and they came back and said, well, we need her to sign it. And I said, well, this is, you know, I pushed back and said, look, this is, <laughs> this is blackmail. This is exactly mm-hmm. cancel culture. You know, are you really serious? This violates every principle that a school like really is supposed to stand for. Um, and, and they backed off and said, OK, you don't have to sign it this year. Uh, as long as you do the two required, every family has to do two required anti-racism training sessions. Um, so we said, OK, fine. Now, I know a lot of people signed it 
under protest and made that yeah, point right. clear. But I, I, as far as I know, everybody, you know, most people said, well, probably everybody signed it. We didn't. Then they incorporated that language into the re-enrollment contract. Yes. So it's okay. not just for incoming kindergarten students and families. They put that language, and I and I and I saw that, and um, and we didn't re-enroll. Obviously, we were you know pulling her out after the end of the year, uh, but we I you know I, I very carefully compared the language in the enrollment contract this year versus last year, and there were two new sections. Uh, one was about vaccination policy, and one was about oh, this anti-racism. Uh, and again, not just supporting it in the school, supporting it and teaching it in the home. Oh my and god! I think how dare the they? How dare they tell you what you knowing, of course, that this is very controversial. There is not uniformity of thought on this. No, despite their best efforts and the schools like them. How dare they try to immerse themselves in between you and your daughter in your home? Yes. And I've had people reach out to me in the last few weeks and say, hey, you know, maybe there's a legal angle to to to, you know, to to try to fight that. You know, we did. We're we're not re-enrolling her. Um, but to go back to your question, you know, so so we started talking to parents. And again, I know, you know, I had a sense for what, you know, th- there's a few constituents that were very unhappy. Um, and I know a few other people did speak up, but but very few. And, and the message was, oh, this is ridiculous, especially after these anti-racism sessions we had to do in, in, over Zoom in the evening. And, and But everyone said, look, yeah, I should write a letter. I should send an email. I should call the school. And then they never do. And this is the, look. There's this pervasive fear, this cancel culture fear of doing of two things, right? Fear of pissing off the school, so they don't help you with admissions to either boarding school, mm-hmm. you know, for high school or for college admissions. Nobody wants to piss off the school, or the fear of losing your job because if you work at a you know at a Goldman Sachs or a big law firm, you cannot speak out on this. Um, mm-hmm. And so we tried to talk to people all through the school year. And could not try to organize. And, and look, organization during COVID times was virtually impossible. No one was getting together. Normally, you mm-hmm. talk about this stuff over dinner, over drinks, whatever. Normally, you'd have parents barge into the head of school's office. Well, parents aren't allowed in the school, right, and haven't been for the last year. So, right. uh, again, I, I think a lot of this doesn't happen absent COVID, but that's a separate issue. But it, but it was just impossible to organize families, and it was virtually impossible to get people to speak up because of the overriding cancel culture. So when yeah. we decided not to re-enroll her, and, uh, and, and and unfortunately, it was an easy decision. You know, as much as the Brilli education is great, and, and, and in a lot of ways, it's still good, as much as it's a status symbol, which for a lot of parents, that's the primary reason that they're sending yeah. their kids to these schools. And as much as it, it's the feeder to, you know, Harvard and Princeton and Yale, in the end of the day, it was an easy decision not to not to send her back because I care deeply about education. I care deeply about sort of this history and civics education that's being changed or eradicated or some combination of both the most. And so that's when we decided not to re-enroll her, her back for next year is when I said, you know what, let me write this letter. And, and you know, the goal of the letter was not to change anybody's mind on this anti-racism initiative. You know, it was not to educate anybody on what is going on. Parents are very well aware. Or most parents are very well aware of what's going on. It was simply to encourage other parents to speak up. I said, look, mm-hmm. I'm not personally, professionally cancelable. We've already decided to not enroll her for next year. And I can do this. And, and someone has to do this was, was my. Why opinion. are you not? Why are you not cancelable? How is that possible? Um, 
so I've got I've done a number of things in, in my background. I, I was I was I, I've been <laughs> I've, I've been described in many different ways in the press in the last few weeks. Um, I, I I got involved with my family's uh, business, so hopefully they won't fire me. <laughs> I've actually been canceled. I, one thing I do do I got an email uh, yesterday. I have been and I have not been very involved in the last couple of years, but for ten or twelve years. I've been a, a advisor to MBA students at Columbia Business School, where I'm an alum, a career coach. Uh, they started the program 10 or 12 years ago. I was one of the original uh, coaches. I've been doing it. I, I've been very. I've not been very active in the last year or two. Uh, but I got an email yesterday around five o'clock saying my my, my services are, are no longer required, no. Uh, which, which which was sort of expected. So yeah, I got canceled in a very very small way, and and they just said it was because I haven't been active, but. Um, you know, I you can know the it, truth, but that's okay. But, but professionally, I'm not cancelable. I don't work at a big firm. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, you know, a lot of people have said, and, and I appreciate it and I get it, you know, you're courageous and brave, but you know, I, because I'm not cancelable. And again, I know, you know, with Paul Rossi, who you had on the show, I think mm-hmm. what he did is, is much more courageous because he was cancelable. And, and in fact, you know, was canceled. Um, you know, he was risking his livelihood and his career. And I think he'll wind up okay. It sounds like he will. Um, but I wasn't. So, you know, look, I just did what I thought. Well, but here's, right. here's the question. Did, did you, did you, do you know where you're sending your daughter next year? No, no, we're going to, we're going to try out, uh, some, some variation of homeschool. No. So, so like, let me just stop you there. That then, then this is extremely brave too. I mean, it was even without that, but like, not having her place, not knowing where she'd go. Like, that is scary. I, I've i been there, you know, where it's like, all I know is I'm not sending them here. Yeah, my wife's a little stressed about it. Yeah, it's scary because you, you go from like this gold standard of education to, huh, <laughs> we're yeah. going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. I know it's stressful a little bit, but, you know, I, I, I have this dream. I will talk about this, I'm sure, later, is, you know, what, 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 we'll do, what we'll do next. Um, but, you know, starting a school is is a possibility. So one of the reasons you might not want to speak out if you're a parent in Andrew's situation is you're worried about how it's going to affect your child, right? Like what, what's going to happen to him or her? We get into that next and you might be surprised at what Andrew's daughter said to him. Don't go away. I've had a number of schools reach out to me and said, hey, we'd love, we'd love to have your daughter. What? That's awesome. Yeah, we'll be okay. She'll be, look, my daughter will be okay. Well, and she's learning she, that, that the most important thing is she's she's learning. She's seeing you stand up for what you believe in, for what you think is right. And even though you're getting considerable blowback for it, it's hard for her, I'm sure, because she's still in the community. Um, you know, it's complicated. But I think the overall lesson to her is definitely a positive one. In the end, I think it is. And she's very supportive. Look, it, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you two things. Uh, one, one, at the end of the day, this was her decision. If she had wanted to stay, we absolutely would have let her stay. We would have tried to fight this more quietly, you know, within the school. But she was supportive yeah. of it. Did not make this decision wow. for her. This was a family decision, the three of us, my wife, myself, and my daughter. Now, I'll tell you a little story, which is, uh, again, the, the teachers have been terrific at the school since this has happened. The administration, you know, Aww, I can say different hear. things. But one of the things that the administration did, which was a little bit nasty, was to try to in a letter that, that the head of school sent me and, and I've been excommunicated from the school, actually. Uh, I'm not <laughs> what, I'm in, off what, all in what way I'm off all emails. I'm not supposed to contact anybody at the school. 
I actually tried to send the head of school right when this happened an email saying, look, you know, as a, I know it's difficult as a human being. I know this is difficult for you. She was criticized in the press, really was criticized in the press. So I tried to send that email and it bounced back. So they, they don't even like send emails. Can you drop her off? Are you what happens if you show up? I, she's actually remote. Um, uh, of course. Remote. So it, uh, and I don't know. Look, I think they wanted to kick her out and I think they couldn't because they get bad press. I don't know what would have happened if she had been in person. Um, there, you know, really has had the remote option this year. I don't know what would have happened, but but being her remote, it's been fine. There, you know, really no issues. But so so the, so my daughter, of her own volition, when this happened, after we got that letter from head of school, in her own words, sent an email to the head of the school and the head of the middle school, and it was very oh. strong. And we actually had to tone it down because it was too strong for a twelve. Oh my god. Did she, did she, did she crib off of your letter? Like, this is bullshit. This is a pain in the ass. <laughs> she didn't say bullshit. She said, I, I used the term, it's funny, I used the term in my letter. And it was about, it was a minor part of the letter about the, this consulting group, Pollyanna, that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that I criticized. I think I, I called them rent seeking charlatans, which they are, but I, I said something in content and delivery, they, they failed. The letter that the head of school sent then, which became public to the entire community took those words in content and delivery. Andrew's letter failed. My daughter used those same words in, you know, oh, in content no and delivery, which I thought was funny. We, 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 toned it, we, we told her, you got to tone it down. It's a little inappropriate from a 12 year old. But her message was, <laughs> I, I I'm, agree with my dad. I support what he did. And I'm really proud for that. He stood up for what he believed in. Aww. And my daughter got a, I think it was like a four word response. Glad you're okay. That was oh, it. That's that's. I mean, for but them, she's that's fine. brave. The good news is she's fine. You can criticize the administration, right? Exactly. You know, you're you know you're good. Um. All right. So let's get into the letter. So sure. it's addressed to fellow Brearley parents, which is interesting. And you yeah. you sent it to all six hundred plus families yeah. at the at the school. The entire is like every okay. So six hundred and fifty six families. I have the paper cuts to prove it. That was the hardest thing with stuffing those envelopes. My daughter wouldn't help, but my wife helped a little bit. My daughter refused. She was too busy. But yeah, you know, you know, there was a rumor. Someone called me up that first day or two. There was a rumor that was floating around that I only sent it to the white parents, which was absurd. Oh, God. I sent it. I, I will be very frank. I sent it to every single family, save three, that happened to have uh, overseas addresses in the system. And I just didn't want to okay. deal with the post for overseas. So okay. 656 letters went out to every single family address to both parents. That that in and of itself, trying to everybody and people have asked, how did you get the list? Everybody had access to it. Um, oh yeah, the, I mean, we all have a school directory, and yeah. and I assume to the administration as well. Yes, I did not send it to the yeah. administration. Oh, um, I only you sent it to the. It. We have access to the administration, yes, and teachers, but okay. I only sent okay. it to the parents, not to the kids, to the parents, addressed to both parents, and I, you know, I, you know, people have asked why didn't you know why did you email it? I, I, look, I thought. I thought this was appropriate as a letter. Um, and then, uh, you know, the reaction came, really reacted. But yeah, sent all right, it all so family. Just to bring it uh, into view for the audience. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of it here and there. Dear fellow Burley parents, uh, we're not re-enrolling our daughter. She's been at Burley for seven years, beginning in kindergarten. You're more articulate than my short form there, but bear with me. Um, in short, we no longer believe that Brearley's administration and board of trustees have any of our children's best interests at heart. Moreover, we no longer have confidence that our daughter will receive the quality of education necessary to further her development into a critically thinking, responsible, enlightened, and civic-minded adult. Yeah, I write to you as a parent to share our reasons for going, and I urge you to act. Paragraph. 
it cannot be stated strongly enough that Brearley's obsession with race must stop. It should be abundantly clear to any thinking parent that Brearley has completely lost its way. The administration and the board have displayed a cowardly and appalling lack of leadership by appeasing an anti-intellectual, illiberal mob and then allowing the school to be captured by that same mob. What follows are my personal views. I know other parents have expressed them too. Paragraph. I object to the view that I should be judged by the color of my skin. I cannot tolerate a school that not only judges my daughter by the color of her skin, but encourages and instructs her to prejudge others by theirs. By viewing every element of education, every aspect of history, and every facet of society through the lens of skin color and race, we are desecrating the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and utterly violating the movement for which such civil rights leaders believed, fought, and died. I mean, that is like, it's strong and it's true. And I think a lot of us who have been dealing with this for a long time were cheering when we read that, Andrew. I mean, can you just talk about how it manifested when you talk about their obsession with race? We know about the contracts you just mentioned, but why use the word obsession with race? It, it seemed like, again, I, I can't speak to what, what is going on in the school. I, you, know, you hear what's going on. You see these Zoom sessions. You know they're having all these diversity, equity, inclusion, assemblies, this stuff for parents. We, there, was, there was a Zoom at the very beginning of the school year talking about their new initiatives where they basically said, we're going to incorporate this anti-racism training into every aspect of the school, every class. It's not just history, right? It's not just a classical literature curriculum. It's integrating it into every aspect of the school. And, you know, I hear stories from my daughter. Again, I'm not observing, even though she's remote, I don't observe what she's learning. I've never done that. But you know, she, she tells the stories all the time. I mean, everything they're talking about is race related. And again, I, I, you know, it has to stop. It's, it's not, we're not saying we shouldn't talk about diversity. We're not saying we shouldn't talk about racism. Um, we're not saying we shouldn't highlight, uh, you know, civil rights leaders, but this, this is absolutely an obsession at and, and a lot of other schools. Now, you go on to say a lot of really smart and indisputable things in here. Um, the part that I think got you in trouble, if there if there was trouble, yeah, is systemic racism. The next part, yeah, systemic yeah. racism, uh, where you say, reading again, I object to the charge of systemic racism in the country and at our school. Systemic racism, properly understood, is segregated schools and separate lunch counters. It is the interning of Japanese and the extermination of Jews. Systemic racism is unequivocally not a small number of isolated incidents over a period of decades. Ask any girl of any race if they have ever experienced insults from friends, have ever felt slighted by teachers, or suffered the occasional injustice from a school at which they've spent up to 13 years of their life, and you're bound to hear grievances and some petty, some not. Um, I'm just going to continue shortly. We, we've not had systemic racism against blacks in this country since the civil rights reforms of the 60s, a period of more than 50 years. To state otherwise is a flat-out misrepresentation of our country's history and adds no understanding to any of today's societal issues. If anything, longstanding and widespread policies such as affirmative action point in precisely the opposite direction. I object to a definition of systemic racism, apparently supported by Brearley, that any educational, professional, or societal outcome where blacks are underrepresented is, underrepresented is prima facie evidence of the aforementioned systemic racism or of white supremacy and oppression. So let me just tell you a story. I know a dad, a Brearley dad, who is, I think, with us on being anti-woke, reasonable guy, very successful guy here in Manhattan. 
and he got your letter and he he's on your team. But this was the part that made him say, I'm not going to publicly come out and support this in any way because I don't want to sign on to that. That pissed too many people off and was too diminishing of like the country's history to the point where I just I can't give him a thumbs up on this. I can't do something to say I support the letter. Did you did you hear much of that in response? And do you have any regrets about what you wrote there? Well, I, look, I, I, I've heard that, obviously, and, I, and I'm aware that's the, the part that that's been you know criticized the most. I stand by what I said and, you know, and I'll address that. And I actually wrote a follow up. It hasn't been made public where I where I address that a little bit more. Um, yeah, look, I, if, if, if that is what, and th- that's news to me that people have, I, I know people have said, you know, they don't necessarily agree with that. If that's a reason that a lot of people didn't stand up for that, then, you know, I, maybe I could say I regret that in, in, in the sense that I agree with what I wrote, but if it was less effective, I've had a lot of people at Brearley and elsewhere say, you know, we may not agree with everything. And this is why I wanted to go strong on a lot of these issues. They, it's okay to say we don't agree with everything. My letter was not about race, in my opinion. It was about the inability to have discussions about race and more broadly about the indoctrination. So I don't view this as about race, but superficially people thought it was about race. Um, well, I, it's, I think it's an example of like, this is your opinion. And a lot of people share your opinion. I think if, if I had Glenn Lowry on this show, he, he might say a lot of the same things that you're saying. And I've had him on the show. Um, yeah. not, not, not perhaps exactly, but, but close. Yeah. I had just read, I had recently read Shelby Steele. I was just going to say Shelby Steele, yeah. white guilt, all of that. I'm guilt, sure. Right. I sure. had read that recently. Um, and, and that I, I was very impressed with, with, with that. Well, that um, might, but like to your point, you're entitled to this opinion. This is your opinion. And this, this is the opinion you're not allowed to share. It's, it's so controversial and hot button and toxic to put it in there because no one's hearing that because you can't put Shelby Steele on TV. You can't talk about Glenn Lowry. Paul Rossi got he got told when he said, let's bring Glenn Lowry to the school and yeah. have him talk to you know our students. The, the, the head of school was like, can't you find a white person who's going to say all this? Because to have a black man saying this um, you know, could be a particular problem, meaning he's going to be too effective. Yeah. Well, I'll, so let me say a few things about the systemic racism. One is I think people who read it superficially we're, we're assuming I'm saying there's no racism in this country. That's absurd. I mean, I thought that was so obvious in a point that I didn't need to address that. Of course, there's yeah. racism in the country. What I was trying to get at is the way, and that's the next paragraph that you, you, know, you read, the way that this critical race theory movement is describing systemic racism, their definition, and they're masters, by the way, at redefining and co-opting these words, right? If you're not anti-racist, you're racist. The systemic racism, which even, you know, Biden has has talked about lately. Um, I, I, I vehemently disagree that again. What I wrote: any outcome where there's not a you know equality of outcome, which you addressed you know a little bit earlier, is, is racism. No, that is not systemic racism or institutional racism. So I vehemently disagree with that definition. Um, I'm not saying there's no racism in this country. That would be absurd. But I was arguing the principle that no, what what we are we have been fed. In the last few years, you know, in, in the media, uh, with the assumption now that people have just, you know, taken in that that we live in this society with systemic racism, I disagree with. Um, but what again, you, well, what, what, let me ask you about the sentence. Systemic racism is not a small number of isolated incidents right. over a period of decades. What's that a reference to? So, OK, so so we're we're 
a lot. You talked about this, I think, at Collegiate. Um, there was a Black at Brearley Instagram group mm-hmm. that yeah. uh, that and they then they let all the schools. Yeah, they 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 um, then uh, wrote a letter to the head of school, and that was a lot of the impetus for a lot of these changes at Brearley, or apparently it was. I don't know. And so I went through that, and there's I don't know how many there are, uh, dozens maybe maybe less than hundred I think, but somewhere of of people who wrote it mostly anonymously about their experiences. They didn't say when most of them they were in school. Some of them were close decades. Some of them are more recent. And I so I read through them all uh, before I wrote the letter. And look, I am not saying there haven't been instances of racism. So you're not talking about the United States there. You're talking about the public complaints made about Brearley. Right. So so one of them was, and I'll pick a few, you know, one of them was, well, my, my uh, in kindergarten, everyone wanted to play with my hair. Now, I had a, I had a, a mom of a first grader call me the day the letter became, uh, the, they, they she received the letter and said, and she brought it up to me. I didn't bring it up. She had also gone through that, that Black and Brearley Instagram page and said, in kindergarten, that's all the girls did is play with each other's hair. They had nothing yeah, to do with it. That's race. true. There was another, there was, there was two other, I'll, I'll pick out just, you know, to be brief. There, there, there were two comments uh, on the Black and Brearley. One person saying, I got into like 11 Ivy League and equivalent type of schools, you know, something like that. Um, but, people, but, but people said, you know, I only got in because of my skin color and affirmative action. Somebody else said, well, because I was black, the guidance counselors or the career counselors told me not to apply to any Ivy League schools. Okay, well, how can they both together? They're completely opposites, right? How can they both together be evidence of systemic racism? They can't. By the way, there's zero chance anybody ever told a black girl that, that really zero chance anybody said. That's a lie. I'm I'm just going to call bullshit on that right now. Yeah. And that's the problem with these black at really. Yeah, no, but that's the problem with these black at really black. It's black wherever. Because in the law, the lawyer in me would say we wouldn't allow these claims into court in any way, shape or form. Not not certainly not as a claim because they're untimely, but um, not even as evidence. You wouldn't even be allowed to tell that story on the on the stand in anybody's trial as as like evidence of a pattern because they are so out of time and so unsupported. There is no way of understanding whether they are reliable. Anybody can get on there and post something. I mean, who knows whether these are real accounts or not? Who knows whether race was really behind this stuff or not? There's no way with the passage of time for us to have any way of following up and figuring it out. So, but in, but to instead, the schools take these and the, and the people and proponents of, of critical race theory take them as gospel. They said it, and so it must happen. And even now, I mean, one of the ones that was listed in one of the rebuttals to your letter was an example of, and, and some of them are obviously racist. I mean, you, you, no one's going to sure. dispute that some of the stuff that sure. was put on there, if it happened, in fact, was 100% racist. But, but here's just an example that's so like, wait, what? Um, a black student's mother was called into a private meeting for which she had to take a day off of work to be told that her daughter was speaking too much in class. That's racism because yeah. we're supposed to believe that black people, black children are not capable of controlling the amount they speak. And so they should be allowed to dominate the class, to talk over the teacher, to talk over others. And if you object to that, that's your white supremacy. This is actually a strain I'm seeing in a lot of the critical race theory reporting right now at the K through 12 and the college education levels. This is how nuts it is that for the school to say, can you try to get her to dial it back? And there's no way the teachers hadn't tried to handle this first with her. You don't go to the administration and call on the parent until it's become an ongoing issue. It's out of the teacher's control. So anyway, the, the, these black at whatever school Instagram accounts are 
in some ways illuminating, but in other ways, totally useless because there's no way of testing any of the assertions. That's correct. I, I agree with that. I, 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 like you said, look, some of them are racism, but that is not systemic racism. And that was the point I was trying to make. The, 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 there is no evidence of systemic racism in a really zero, in my opinion. Now, you want to disagree? Fine. I don't believe there's systemic racism in this country. If you use the correct definition or institutional racism, if you use the correct definition, but you can argue that and you can disagree with that, that is fine. The bigger point here is in this country, on a you know on a bunch of issues, race you know certainly we are not able to have discussions of this. Someone immediately puts their finger in their ears and cries racist. Right, democracy doesn't work fundamentally if we can't have discussions of these kind of important issues. It just doesn't work. And that's where we are on race, you know, the third rail, right? Uh, and on a whole lot of other topics. So yeah, look, I, I know I was criticized for the systemic racism. I stand by what I wrote, properly understood. Again, not saying there isn't racism, but saying, look, I think the definition of systemic racism that is used by these critical race theories that has now become adopted by the media and, and the president and, you know, and everyone thinks it's the case I disagree. Be in mm-hmm. uh, Okay, let's discuss it. Well, you so okay. and right, and you and you can't right exactly. You can't. So so the, you go on to say, and I thought this was actually a very interesting and good point. Um, you say I, I object to mandatory anti-racism training for parents, and this that the, you called it, the, uh, especially when presented by the rent-seeking charlatans of Pollyanna. Pollyanna is deeply pro- problematic. Whatever the words you used, it's deeply problematic. And if it's at your kid's school, you better do some googling asap. Um, I object to Burley's vacuous, inappropriate, and fanatical use of words such as equity, diversity, and inclusiveness. And then you say this, if Burley's administration was truly concerned about so-called equity, it would be discussing the cessation of admissions preferences for legacies, siblings, and those families with especially deep pockets. You said the thing out loud, Andrew. You said the thing out loud that you're you're not allowed to say that thing out loud. You know, what really, I forget if I wrote this, but you know, yeah, I did write this. This is where I call the bullshit. They keep saying over and over, we get these, day, you know, weekly or month or whatever they are, you know, emails from the DEI committee, diversity, equity, inclusion committee. They used to be one page emails. Now they're 15 page emails about all the events they're doing and everything you should do at home and what books you should read. Um, and they always say over and over, we want you to have, and we want to have these difficult and challenging discussions courageous conversations right complete sorry right complete bullshit you know they don't want to they're they're playing lip service they see this black kid really what can we do let's bring in pollyanna we don't have to do the hard work right we'll bring in pollyanna we'll um you know we'll have some mandatory training for for teachers and for and for parents and we'll put this in the curriculum they're not asking the hard questions why why let's talk about why are there racial discrepancies you know socioeconomically why, why did I think I read this week only eight blacks get into Stuyvesant, you know, very, very difficult to get into test-based admissions, uh, you know, in, in high school for New York City. Let's talk about the real issues, right? They don't want to do that. They do not want to do that at all. Um, mm-hmm. they, you know, they, they, they're not taking this. They, if, they you know, if they didn't give such a preference for the little sisters of the yeah. existing students, uh, of the legacies, meaning like the children of Brearley, you know, alums. Yeah. Um, they'd have more spots for the underprivileged, for children yes. of color who might not otherwise get into Brearley. Do it. Let's see you do it. Yeah. Can't wait. And and the thing is, 
they won't because that's where the money starts to dry up. That's like they want sure. money. They want alums. They want to take both of your girls instead of just one of your girl because that's more tuition and that's more loyalty to Brearley and more donations. Because let me tell you, I mean, I can speak to this and I'm sure you can too. As a parent in the New York City private school system, they don't just want your fifty-four, $57,000 tuition a year. They want extra. And as soon as you get in, they hit you up for additional donations. And they, they might even put a number on it. They might even say, may we suggest a donation of X? And let me tell you, X is big. It's a big number. It can be way more than the tuition. So there's yeah. pressure for you to donate in the way they the way they work the pressure is to buy is by like suggesting that there's loyalty between you and the school. Right. So they're not going to say no to the siblings. They're not going to say no to the legacies like the little kids who are the, you know, the children of alums. Yeah. And until they start doing that, they should really stop lecturing the rest of us. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't. I really went through a whole building campaign. They built a new building uh, that opened about a year ago. So there was an, and we're not we're not that high in net worth that we were asked to, to donate a whole lot of money. But yeah, I mean, this is these are fundraising organizations. And one thing I've realized, this is a broader point, was that, you know, these institutions and you see how they what, you know, after the after the press of my letter, you know, how they they, they come together. They were all about protecting the institution. This is not about the children. This is not about education. This is about protecting the institution. That's what these schools are about. Up next, we're going to talk about how other parents at Brearley reacted to Andrew's very public letter and also the COVID restrictions going on there and also just recommended by the CDC for your child if he or she is planning on going to camp this summer. Have you seen these? I'm on a tear. I can't believe what they want us to do. And no, I'm not doing it. I'm not. And if you haven't heard of it, you're going to hear it next. So stay tuned for that. But first, we're going to bring you a feature we have here on the show called Real Talk, which is just a chance to talk about anything I want to talk about. I mean, it's my show. I, I, I guess I can do that even without labeling it Real Talk. But that's what we're going to do here. Um, I just want to take a moment and, and say a word about the vaccines. Doug and I both got vaccinated this past weekend, the first half. Um, so we originally were going to go and you got to understand, because I, I know I, I posted this on Twitter. I did not pose one of the what I call the dumbass pictures of myself getting vaccinated. It's such a virtue signaling thing to do. I don't need to see you get the damn shot in your arm. I did not post that, but it did happen. Um, and Doug and I originally were going to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I did ask my doctor. I said, is that cool? Especially for women who are of childbearing age. And I don't think that includes a 50-year-old. But <laughs> technically, I guess, you know, before the change comes... I'm still able. <laughs> um, anyway, he says, fine, no problem. You can get it. And you should talk to your own doctor, right? Because if you've got blood clotting issues and so on, maybe you get a different recommendation. But our, our doc said to go for it. So we show up. Abby, of course, who runs my life, gives me a printed out piece of paper from CVS, right? She, she's, so, she's upset still. <laughs> it says, Megan Kelly, Doug Brunt, CVS, our address of our CVS right around the corner, Johnson & Johnson. 11 o'clock. So we go. I go to the, the, the pharmacist, you like the little counter. And I'm like, yeah, we're here for the vaccine. And the guy's looking at me like, what? I'm like, here, we have this paper saying that we, you know, we sh we're supposed to be here for the vaccine. And the, the guy looks at it. He goes, I don't understand this. I'm like, why not? He said, not only do we not offer the vaccine here, we've never offered the vaccine here ever. And uh, so I didn't Johnson and Johnson or any other. And uh, at first I'm thinking, he must not be a fan. 
<laughs> is there like some secret vaccine counter for the liberals? <laughs> um, anyway, it turns out it was true. And uh, so I'm like, oh, great. So now I got to scramble because we really just wanted to get it over with. I, I want the vaccine. I'm sure vaccine passports are coming. And I definitely want to be able to travel to places like Europe and inside the United States that won't let me in without a damn vaccine passport, which I'm opposed to. But I also want the vaccine. I will tell you, honestly, even if they weren't going to require that, I, I'm pro-vax. Uh, I was going to get the vaccine all along. And um, I never really wavered in that. And my, and my doctor has been very pro-vaccine. I trust him. So that's my decision. I don't judge anybody who doesn't do it. You know, you do you. And, uh, but I want it. So we got an appointment at the CVS in Midtown and we went in and we got the first half of the Pfizer vaccine. And for whatever it's worth, and it may be worth nothing to you, it was a nothing. Now, there's some of the side effects are supposed to come after the second dose. So we'll see. My arm hurt for like a day. Mildly. Same for Doug. It was fine. I felt better after getting it. I had nice small talk with the guy who gave me the shot and with the people who were also getting the shot. There's a guy from Israel who was bitching that he got it. He didn't want to get it, but his wife made him. But ultimately, he did it. You got to remember, New York is just, New York got leveled by this damn thing. Leveled. And so people here are still masked up everywhere you go. And I don't know, I guess sort of also feel a responsibility living in New York to do it. Um, I will say for the record, I have zero concerns about what's going to happen to me long term. My feeling on it is if there's some long term awful thing that comes from these vaccines, then the same damn scientists at Pfizer and Moderna and elsewhere who came up with these great vaccines are going to come up with a fix because American science is still the greatest science in the world. Like there's a reason we are bathing in all these vaccines and nobody else is. Nobody else has what we have. We got it first. We got it. We got it fast. We got it right. Um, and if we didn't, if it turns out long term, there's a problem, they're going to fix it. Right now, we need the vaccine. We need it to get back to life. People are dying, even young people. Um, even though the, the risk is minuscule that you will die from COVID if you are under the age of 80. Um, people have died from it. You just never know, even young people. So why not, right? If you're, if you're really afraid of the vaccine, just talk to your doctor. Don't go on fucking YouTube. Go talk to your doctor. That's a person you've entrusted with your, skin, with your life, your well-being. Same thing for your kids. Ask your pediatrician what they think. Don't listen to cable news or any other pundits tell you whether to get it or not to get it. Okay. Um, that's it. That's all I got. Just want to tell you that I got the first dose. So did Doug. I've already lost my little damn card. Of course. <laughs> Literally, of course. What's the story with that? Like now. You needed to travel. You just said it. Well, can't can I? Won't no, they give me. Doug and I today were like, of course. <laughs> oh, I texted Doug saying, did you, do you have my card? And you no. never texted me back. Because yeah, he called me. And he was like, we can't, we have no card. <laughs> <laughs> they shouldn't have entrusted me with that. I should have said, could you mail that directly to Abigail Finan? I should have gone with you. Well, now what? Like, can I get the second shot? I, I don't have a TBD. We have to tell her. <laughs> yeah. We have to find out. Well, don't be like me. I think you already know that in life. Keep your card. <laughs> Keep your card. Or give it to somebody reliable. I didn't even take a screenshot of it. Oh, I'm in the system. They're going to figure it out. I, I have faith. I have faith, faith in the vaccine and my doctor and in CVS. Not the one right around the corner from me, which is putting out misinformation on its appointments and vaccine availability, but the one in Midtown Manhattan, I trust. Uh, all right, long-winded, but there you go for whatever it's worth. And now, after this break, back to Andrew. The discussion that we're having reminds me of the NBA in China. They're, they're yeah. wonderful about virtue signaling uh, when it comes to Black yes. Lives Matter and then messages on the court and on the players' jerseys and so on. But when it comes to money, 
like cold, hard cash that they're getting from China, they won't say a word. They don't want to talk about it. You just go back and listen to my podcast with Mark Cuban. If you don't believe me, didn't want to talk about it at all because that's cash out of the pocket. And now what they're starting to learn as people revolt against all this nonsense and wokeness in the NBA and all these other sports, uh, it, it's costing them money. Even Coke, there was a, you know, they've gone non-woke now. They, they went out in the woke train and there's a great piece on National Review about how they're, they've gone non-woke not long after they put themselves on that train because they're losing business. Yeah. And they fired their general counsel who'd been pushing a lot of it. And anyway, so it's, and the new general counsel is like, we'll see whether we're going to do any of that in the future. So there's... The commercial cost, if parents like you, if people who object to what the NBA did, to what Coke did, stand up. And that's why yeah. they just try to get out of bounds by pushing it back on you as saying, racist, racist, we're, we're not, you are, bye. Uh, right. Okay, let me shift gears and, say, and talk about the reaction now. So you send this out and you get, like you said, you get a reaction from, among others, well, first let's talk about the head of school, Jane Freed, yeah. says your, your letter was deeply offensive and harmful. And I quote, This afternoon, I and others who work closely with upper school students met with more than 100 of them, many of whom told us that they felt frightened and intimidated by the letter and the fact that it was sent directly to our homes. And I should mention in your letter, there was a there was an objection to uh, is it I don't know if I I don't want to mischaracterize it, but to the uh, like affirmative action policies and letting students in, you said, who basically their academics wouldn't justify admission. No, that that point was if this can if we don't stop this this continues, it's very obvious the writing on the wall. Okay. About about you're going to lower standards, you know, that that was that point. Um but yeah, you know, So I what think, do you, what did you make of her response? Well, I think <laughs> the same that most people did both in the Brearley community and in the broader community since this was picked up by the press. Uh it was appalling response. And for a number of reasons and and the thing that what you just read, what people picked up, and I, the first thing I picked up on, and everybody did, was that comment on the frightening the, the high schoolers, the upper schoolers. And I've said this a number of times. Look, Brilli's really been around, you know, I don't know, 140 years. Uh, it is, you know, one of, if not the most, the preeminent all-girls school in New York, maybe in the country. If there's one single thing that Brilli has prided itself on, and we've heard this in the seven years my daughter's been in the school, is producing intellectually courageous girls, intellectually brave girls. And to say that our upper schoolers are frightened by a piece of paper, not to them even, to their parents, or the words on that piece of paper is absurd. And it's one of two things. Either they're lying about it, uh, which I don't really believe, or frankly, they've done an appalling job doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is creating intellectually courageous girls. Uh, And and, 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 and look, you know, a lot of these girls are in, in sort of indoctrinated into this, you know, wokeness, uh, which is a bigger issue. Uh, but that's the line that I think an awful lot of people criticized. Yeah. Rightfully. Right. So. It's like, if that's your goal, courageous conversations and, and yeah. intellectual curiosity fail, fail, brutally fail. fail. And by the way, I mean, this is what they always say, right? Like the people who are woke, anything that you say that's not consistent with their messaging is dangerous. It's downright dangerous. You're a threat and I will say, now you were very kind. You were very kind in speaking about the young girl's message who who posted publicly in response to you. Um, I I will do her the the courtesy of treating her like the grown up she's purporting to be in this in this public letter and say this was not a fact based piece. It was not. 
because her, this young woman who wrote publicly about your letter, um, said, and I quote, that she called you, your, your position on systemic racism, ignorant at best. Okay. She doesn't agree with you. That's fine. Uh, but then she says as evidence that there's no systemic, that there is systemic racism, quote, Shirley Gutman has read the news lately. People of color are being shot and killed, quote, accidentally on the regular, on the regular, she says. Right. And and then she goes on to say, I am so tired of hearing that my existence takes up too much space. I am tired of hearing debates about whether my voice belongs in the classroom. No one's no one's doing that. No one is doing that. Your mind has been so corrupted by these race hustlers that yeah. you've been led to believe that there that there is an epidemic of police shoot, shooting people in the street, black people. There isn't. And that somebody saying your existence takes up to who. The, what did you make of that? Well, uh, let me address this. Is, let me address the, the police shootings issue, if you don't mind. Because um, yep. I wrote a fo- I wrote a follow up and it has not been published and I don't think it will I was going to say, I didn't but, see that. Where, where is no, that? No, I, it, it hasn't. But um, but I because okay. I, I wanted to address the systemic racism issue. Um, and uh, so I, I did some digging because I knew this because I've read about this, but I did some digging. And, you know, Department of Justice 2018, about and I have this in front of me, but 20 percent of offenders of violent crime incidents were identified as black. Twenty nine percent FBI data says about 27% of people arrested in this country were identified as Black. And according to a website, uh, Statista, in that same year, 23% of the number of people shot to death by police were identified as Black. So there is no evidence that Blacks are being killed by police, by white police officers, out of proportion to the crimes they commit. There is simply no evidence of this systemic racism. And But we have been drilled in our heads by the media over the last few years, and certainly since George Floyd, that these high-profile police shootings of, of, you know, white killings of black men and women, which are tragic and maybe instances of racist cops, they, they certainly may be, but data says these are not, there is not evidence of systemic racism. And people don't know that. Uh, of course not. No, they think the exactly the opposite. But and and the problem is everything for her is anecdotal, right? If I'm sure if yes. you went back to her and asked her for stats, she wouldn't give them to you. It's you know uh, her lived experience and watching George Floyd played over and over and over and watching you know people like um oh god what's his name in in the uh, in Wisconsin who got shot Jacob Blake and the yeah. Breonna Taylor and because the yep. media picks these cases and tries to play them over and over and over and misleads people. Same thing that's happening with COVID. By the way, when you say that you had a vaccine clause in your Brearley contract is. Do you think they're trying to set you up to agree to a mandatory COVID vaccine for your kids? What's that about? Oh, yeah, I think so. The reason my daughter was remote. uh, So a number of families kept their kids remote, mostly because of fear of COVID. Uh, We kept we had every intention. I haven't talked about this publicly, by the way, but we have uh, we had every intention in September of sending her back in person. I'm not a fan of remote school. I think it's not real school. I think I mean, they really have done a great job, but it still sucks. It's not real school. Uh, We had every intention of sending her back. And there was a Zoom. Uh, to talk about right before school started, all the restrictions. And I said to myself and my wife said, and my daughter said, these are abusive to children, these restrictions. And I I believe they are, this is child abuse. What they are, uh, the the restrictions in schools and as bad to mental health is as remote school and not being with your friends and, and in person, I think these restrictions are worse for the mental health of children. I think they are terrorizing children. And this is not going to go away in a year. This is going to be with them for a long time, if not forever. 
And that's the reason why we kept her remote. Um, and we can, so I, you know, I, I, I have some, some, again, non-mainstream views on COVID policy, but, but to your point, it's, 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 that's right. I mean, we I can't don't have know these, if you're, I don't know what you're saying. Non-mainstream. If you're against some of these crazy restrictions, you're a hundred percent mainstream. You're just on the right half of the country. The country's very divided on this. It's the, it's hysterical. There was a long piece in the Atlantic just this week. No, of course, New York, for New York. Is, New York went 87 percent for Joe Biden. But yeah. in the country, I mean, even some of my lefty friends in New York are starting to come over to this sort of place of reason and logic in between where they're they're rejecting this partisan jersey now because they're like they can see the hysterics over the covid lockdowns and what it's doing to children. Um, and we, we like there was an article in The Atlantic this week that was amazing, talking about how liberals are now starting to reject the the crazy sort of fear porn covid liberals who are. We triple masking with the face shield and never want to go back into the classroom or any place else public because they refuse, even though they've been double vaxxed, to resume normal American life. And if you challenge them, you know, they they bust out their fake little coffin and say, you want them in it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. You know, really, it's double masks mandatory. <gasps> For the kids? Yep. Yep. Oh, my God. Yeah, double masks. That's yep. insane. At our old school, they... They were having the kids like the upper schoolers, like they had their own little plexiglass shield to walk around. With. So a lot of the, so, you know, one of the things that we, and I communicated this, in addition to the anti-racism, I communicated this to the school um, that, that I thought the policies were abusive. And, uh, you know, so they have the six feet distancing now, now not every classroom, they can do that. So they have a, a separate annex for a lot of these kids where they're watching the teacher on TV anyway. So, you know, we said, okay, if he's going to watch on TV, half the kids are or whatever the percentage is, do it as at home. Just as an aside, now this brings me to some, I'm like, I'm infuriated with this and it's not exactly your issue, but it sounds like it might be. Um, The CDC just released guidance for um, summer camps. Okay. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. We can talk about it. (laughs) Oh my God. So our kids go to a day camp. We go to New Jersey for the summers where we have a little house on the shore, down the shore, as they say, my husband grew up going there. there. So we go there. Okay, well, so we'll, we'll see you there. there. Yeah. Um, and th- we did all the stuff last year. Thank God our camp was open. We were grateful for it. The kids had to wear the masks all day, even though they were running around. Like the kids were practicing like sailing where you're out on a little tiny boat. It's not really a sailboat. It's like a baby sailboat um, by yourself. And you had to have your freaking mask on. But we know what? We were grateful that they did it. And so we all went along. Everybody, you know, they canceled all the social events and all that. The kids basically, you know, just saw each other from afar. Uh, now, here we are a year later where everybody's getting vaccinated. The kids have never pr- been proven to be effective communicators of the of the virus and so on. Yeah. Here are some of the restrictions. I'm quoting from Reason Magazine, Reason.com right now. Everyone at the camp, everyone at the camp, including staff and every child over the age of two, must wear masks at all times unless eating or swimming. Oh, that's nice. They let you take it off when you're swimming. They should wear two Two layers of masks, especially when social distancing is is difficult, regardless of whether they're indoors or outdoors. So even if you're outdoors, two layers of masks. They have to be in cohorts. This is how it was last summer. We're a year later where their interaction with people outside of the cohort must be limited. They have to always be at least three feet away from each other, six feet between campers in a different cohort. Staff has to stay six feet away from the campers at all times, whether inside or outside. Distance maintained while eating, napping, or riding the bus. 
Um, use of physical objects that might be shared among kids, toys, art supplies, electronics should be limited wherever possible. Hello, you just admitted that you it can't be transmitted via surfaces, that there's almost zero chance of it. Tra- Why are you doing that? Camps should not permit closed contact. So sports, so no, no, te- you know, flag football, forget it, that's out. And should wear masks regardless. So again, the outdoor masking while playing sports, which is not safe. Um, and they say if anyone, this is reason, if anyone's curious, there are separate restrictions for outdoor gardening, gardening, the CDC wants to govern how you garden. It's, I mean, Andrew, we've lost our ever loving minds. We have, we have it. it okay. I, I, I've been talking, I've, I've said this for a year and our COVID reaction lockdowns masks are the stupidest thing human beings have ever done purposefully ever. You know, there's been other bad things in human history. This is we, we've destroyed the world for this. It's incredible. And we've destroyed children uh, for this. And it's the saddest absolute thing. We've destroyed New York City for this. Um, and we could, I'm sure we could talk about this all day. My daughter goes to sleepaway camp up in Maine. Uh, and she was one of the she was very lucky that they had a session last year. It's normally seven weeks. It was four. It wasn't too bad on the masks, actually. Um, you know, everyone had to be tested. This year, I think it's going to be worse. And it makes no sense. Last year, we were closer to where, you know, COVID was actually raging. Now, in New York City, it stopped a year ago. April 1st last year, we were done, frankly. Yeah. Now, there, there's, a, there's a lag on when people die, obviously. So you saw the deaths. But when we came back from spring break last year, we were done, I think. Uh, mostly. Yeah. And it's not to say you're, it's zero, but it's But, but sleepaway camp in particular, that's yeah. like, you're leaving. You're, you're, you're in a little, you're encamped. <laughs> They're in the middle of nowhere in Maine. They don't even have electricity in the bunk. She's at, at this kind of rustic camp. And but she has to sleep with a double mask. <laughs> it, it's, it's absurd. I, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that it's not as bad as the CDC. I read that with terrifying what I read, what you just read. Um, I think it's going to be worse than last year, which makes absolutely no sense. I, I, I think, look, people are starting to push back. I even Fauci has gotten criticism for saying kids should wear masks outside. You know, and, and no. finally people are pushing back. It's nuts. And let me tell you something else. Absolutely nuts. Double masking your child and telling him to run around in 90 degree weather yeah. is not safe. No, I would not. not do that. I didn't do it last summer and I'm not going to do it this summer. And if, and if our camp thinks that it's going to impose these restrictions, and I don't think it is because they're actually reasonable people, um, I'll fight. I will 100 yeah. percent fight. That's not safe. Talk to your pediatrician about whether it's safe to have your kid do running or any physical activity that's strenuous outside in that kind of weather with a double mask on. This is insane. We're what risk are we preventing again against other than weird COVID fear porn mongers feeling unsafe? I've I no longer care about them. I know I care more about my children and your children than I care about those grown adults who refuse to, as they tell us, listen to science. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you <laughs> I wrote a paper on masks about a year ago. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have been following this issue for since the beginning. Um, it's on my little blog where I actually there was a, there was an initial. The first the first sort of report where, where people said masks work uh, was was found funded by the WHO and, and within the Lancet, you know, prestigious medical journal. And it was this meta study and it got picked up in all the press. It was written about all over. And this was the justification for math. This really started it off. Um, and, and I read it and I said, eh, it, so was, they, they looked at 29 studies. They looked at social distancing and eye goggles too, I think. But, but I just focused on the mask piece. And 29 studies 
of a meta study, right? And they concluded masks work. So I said, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm skeptical here. So I actually went through all 29 studies. I got all the only I could there was one, one of them was in Chinese. I couldn't get uh, just the, <laughs> just the overview. So I went through and I spent a, couple, a week or two, read them off like three times. And this study was the meta study was absolute garbage. Mistakes, I think in like eight, I'm I'm doing it from memory, eight of them complete the 11 of them shouldn't have been in there because they weren't actually studies of masks or not masks. It, it was absolute garbage. And I sent it to a few scientists and nothing ever happened and no one ever picked it up. Um, but you know, the science wasn't there and I have read, and then people say, well, haven't you have these views? Cause I have read probably just about every single paper on masks that have come out in the last 50 years. And the mm, science wow. pre COVID was very, very clear. Masks are not effective in stopping the transmission of respiratory viruses. Well, and of course, it's what Dr. Fauci told us too. Dr. Fauci yeah, originally correct. told us not to wear them. And now he's like, oh, I was just lying because I didn't want you to buy up all the PPE that the medical providers. It's like, oh, well, well, weirdly, I no longer believe you. It's so strange how that works. So you, I, you've sacrificed your credibility now. And then they look at us like, why? How to trust the authorities? Like, well, I don't trust the WHO. Oh, the one that's covering for China, trying to keep yes. the story about this coming out of a Chinese lab it appears to have been accidental, though the military was working with the lab. I don't know what happened, but listen to my last COVID podcast because um, we had Josh Rogan from The Washington Post, who's done extensive reporting on this, talking about how this thing looks like it came out of a Wuhan lab where they were studying, coincidentally, back coronaviruses and how to right. make them more dangerous to humans in an effort, supposedly, to fight back against them. Well, good luck. That didn't work out so well. Anyway, my point is, I don't trust the WHO and I don't trust Fauci and I don't trust the CDC to give it to me straight. And that's just the way I feel after now a year of listening to these people reverse their positions on virtually everything. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I agree. I, I think it's, it's despicable what's happened. It's, you know, this trusty, this tyranny of the experts that aren't really experts. Uh, the, you know, the real scientists, which are not the ones that go on TV and, and that speak publicly, have been silenced. Um, and they're the ones saying, we don't know much. And, and here's what we know which is, you know, no, the masks aren't going to stop respiratory viruses. Wearing well, them outside I'll tell you that. I will is say absurd this. I will because say there's this. no outside transmission. There's very little. I'll I mean, almost Outside zero. is ridiculous. Kids, that kids needs to stop. are at less risk of, you know, COVID, significantly less risk than seasonal flu. Kids. Now, w- this is a bigger fight to get masks out of schools. Because um, they're going to be in schools a lot, you know. I know. That's the thing. I'm worried about next fall. I'm really worried about next fall. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm my littles. I'll tell you something about Brearley. Um, they, they, we, we were informed, actually, because we talked about this with them, uh, not only to expect these restrictions, including masks, to continue into next school year, but to expect them in the years to come. What? Now, that might change, but that is uh, a, a sort of direct quote from a Brearley administrator. No. Hard yes. pass. Yeah. Hard pass. I mean, that's. Yeah. How long are parents going to let this happen? I mean, my friends who I, m- almost all of my friends here in New York are liberal. Um, yeah. They went their kids haven't been in school all year. Their middle schooler has been going to school what, as of recently one day a week for four hours a day. And they last weekend went to a open the schools rally. Okay, it's May. It's May. And guess what they ran into? Counter protesters calling them white supremacists. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm like, but you know what my I mean, I've said this before, but my only comfort here is that like, 
overreactions like that tr- tend to bring, bring people who are farther out on the ideological s- scale, close to where I am in the center, where I think it's reasonable. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm center right, but I, yeah, I love I center left right. too. I don't care. I, I just, I feel like that's going to send everybody over here to the place of reason and off of these ideological teams because ideologues are not trustworthy. We shouldn't be listening to them. I do want to say one thing for the record though. Um, sure. I haven't read those studies, so I'm not in a position to challenge what was in them. I do, however, trust my doctor when it comes to my vaccines, when it comes to any, I trust my kid's doctor and I trust my doctor. My doctor who happens to be an infectious disease doctor, he, he did say masks work. He did say, get a vaccine. He said, get whatever vaccine you can get. Uh, doesn't matter you know, what it is, just get one. And he did say that he thinks the long-term effects of COVID are more of something to worry about than the long-term effects of a vaccine. So I do do, I wear the mask um, here in New York City. You still have to outside. You can either either mask outside or do six feet away. So I do six feet away unless it's like a jammed up crowd because I'm just sick of people's angry faces. And I know Tucker wants you to get in their face. I'm not like that. And I wouldn't do that. Um, But it needs to end because I think a lot of people here, a lot of people are rule followers by nature. I understand that, too. I kind of I kind of am not as much as the average Joe, but I, I, I get it. And they need permission before they're going to take off these masks when there's a mask mandate. And we and th- so we need to lift it. It like we need to be realistic. If if not, if not for us, then for our kids. Yeah. I mean, I, I've only done the research on masks, um, so I'm not knowledgeable to speak about any other you know, issues. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are going to follow the rules for the most part. I, I've seen in New York City the last you know week or so people it, there's there's fewer outside for sure. We, this pandemic. <laughs> The New York Times did did has done horrific on this issue, but there was one piece they did at the beginning of this, which I thought was really good, which is how do pandemics end? And they got historians to talk about this. Pandemics don't end when the virus goes away. Pandemics end when people get over their fear and learn to live with it. Look, COVID is going to be with us forever. I mean, the, the 1918, you know, H1N1 flu, I think, you know, variants still circulate of it. And I think that a lot of you know infectious disease people and doctors will tell you, look, this will become endemic. It becomes a common cold over time. Um, it, it, we just have to learn to live with it, and that's what we have. Well, that's what we have to do now. We have to get on with yeah. our lives. We have destroyed the world. We've destroyed New York City, and the masks, whether they work or not. And again, I have a strong view on that, having done research. So you can disagree, but you can say I'm uninformed. Um, but these are signs of fear. They're absolutely signs of fear. Mm-hmm. We have to get over the fear. We have to get back to life. We have to get kids back in schools. You know, we have to rebuild the, you know, our, our industries that have been decimated, travel industry and hospitality industry. I mean, you see so many empty storefronts and restaurants closed in New York City. We've literally destroyed the city and, and we're destroying the country and we're destroying the world over this. Again, we can argue about it, how, uh, you know, whether it was worth it or not. I don't think that was worth it. Um, you know, given how deadly this was and, and the demographic of who COVID really affected. You know, if this was killing children in a way or young people in the way that 1918 Spanish flu did, it's a different story. Um, this is most similar to the Asian and Hong Kong flus in, in the late 50s and 60s. You know, the, the, the second of which you had Woodstock raging during it. There was no social distancing mm-hmm. at Woodstock. Um, again, I'm not I'm not a doctor. I'm not an infectious disease. I have done a hell of a lot of research on masks. Um, I can speak to that. But uh, we got to get we we, we got to go back to life. We have to, or yeah. we're destroying the world here. That's my well, and and, and, and topic, fear. Huh? Yeah. No, well, in a way, we're on topic because fear is what's also motivating 
these parents who support you behind the scenes to not speak out. There's no, there's no like one of the things that's pissing me off about your situation is where's the cavalry? Where are they? Come on. Like you're twisting in the wind. And none of those burly parents, even anonymously, they need to come out with a, an anonymous no, uh, letter that can just sort of be family X, family Y, family Z. They're letting you twist in the wind just the same way Paul Rossi's twisting in the wind. Yes, met, you know, people like my, you know, the organization FAIR, Foundation Against Intelligence yeah. Racism that I'm on the board of. Yes, we are. We are supportive. But the other parents in the in the student body, even anonymously need to come out because otherwise this, you know, Jane's response to you trying to make you just look like you're this insensitive, scary guy who's terrified the Brearley student body wind up being kind of the last word. So I don't know what happens to Brearley. They're so far gone down this path. I I know people have written to the school and in support. Again, if they don't have to agree with everything I said, uh, you know, the key point is about we can have a discussion. And there's no indoctrination. And that's, I, I heard, you know, we talk about the response and Paul Rossi got a similar response. I've gotten somewhere close to a thousand people email and message me on this. About 10 of them have been negative. Overwhelmingly positive support from around the country. Now, the scary part of that is I had no idea how entrenched this system, this um, CRT, this critical race theory was in schools and how many parents are dealing with it. Um, mm-hmm. That's the scary part, but overwhelmingly support. And I had somebody who is on the board of his kid's school outside of New York City. And he said to me, um, you have no idea how good, how much, how much good your letter has done in these private schools. Your letter is being discussed in board of trustees meetings at every single private school in the country because they're starting to realize, the boards are, that people will speak up, that people are feeling this way, and no school wants to be the next Brearley in terms of being, you know, in the news about this. Okay, I don't know that that's true, but who, the person that said it is, is quite well respected. Um, and, and if that, look, whatever happens to Brearley, I, I hope they fix it. It's a phenomenal institution over 140 years. I hope it goes back to being a phenomenal educational institution. If it continues down this path, it won't be. They'll destroy it. But I hope that reverses. And I don't think you can reverse it unless you have a change of administration. But maybe this letter is doing some good, uh, you know, in other schools. And look, in the last few weeks, and I'm not going to take credit for it, but in the last few weeks, there's been an awful lot of media attention on this issue, on critical race theory in schools, on critical race theory more broadly, on cancel culture, you know, a lot of a lot of media attention on it. So I look. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, because I mean, I think certainly this is going to this is where really is right now, but it's where a lot of these schools that uh, across the country are right now. this was a response posted to your letter by somebody named Claire Potton at seminar.org. And she said, um, let me just quote in part, claims that children are being harmed by critical race theory are a thin cover for returning to a world where white people don't have to feel bad about racism. She says, um, the tribalism and division that the Brearley dad, you, claim uh, critical race theory is causing already exists, as does the harm Paul Rossi fears it is causing. Prestigious private schools offer real opportunities to black students, but it can come at a very, very high emotional and intellectual cost to them and their parents. And basically what she's saying is, and this is the end quote, um, that white people, including you and Paul, make it all about themselves. That is what white people often do. But in this case, it also shows that these men also understand what's at stake in anti-racism work. 
their own power and the position of their white children as uniquely authoritative and special in a multiracial society. Your thoughts on that? Okay. Sure. You can, you know, <laughs> what do you want to, so what do you, okay, I would ask this person and, and ask the school the same thing. Okay, what do you want? What do you want to do? Okay, you want me to admit I'm, because I'm white, I'm guilty, right? I mean, my my family, you know, a lot of them perished in the Holocaust. We weren't, you know, we didn't have slaves. Um, we weren't in this country. Uh, we weren't in this, you know, a lot of, in the Jim Crow era. I mean, all right, what, so, so what do you want to do? You want also all white people to admit what? Where does that get you? You know, at the end of the day, this is, this is, you know, the Marxist argument for equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity, which, you know, will destroy every, you know, will destroy us, I think. But, you know, you want to, you're trying to teach a kindergarten kid that they should feel guilty for the color of the skin. And this stuff is in kindergarten, right? I mean, I heard, I heard of a Oh, I know. My mom told me, you know, they, so when my daughter was in kindergarten, they had to do a project. They all given a silhouette of their head, uh, you know, a blank head, draw whatever you want draw, you know, however you look, draw your freckles, draw your hair, whatever you want to draw. Well, this, this exercise apparently in kindergarten this year, uh, they were only given skin color crayons and it was, look, we don't care about anything. The only thing that we want you to focus on is getting your skin tone, right? So this is kindergarten. God, this is kindergarten at these schools. I'd be like, I don't need a crayon. Just leave the paper as pasty as it came. (laughs) Just going to do an outline of a face. Just just as pasty as you think, uh, even pastier. (laughs) We have to fight. This, it, it, look, we're not saying there's no racism. We're not saying we shouldn't teach, you know, the, the, the stains in our history. We have terrible stains in American history of, of slavery and Jim Crow and what we did to Native Americans. No question, right? I, I maintain, I wrote in this follow-up, which again, hasn't been published. I, I think we're the least racist country. I think we're the most diverse country in the world. I think we're the least racist. We're the only country or one of the very, very few that has even attempted to address these issues. What other country mm-hmm. has even attempted? Right. What other country is diverse like we are? Are there issues? Of course. Are there, you know, are there racist cops out there? Of course there are. But what benefit is there of telling a kindergarten kid to feel guilty for his or her color of her skin? Where does that get no. you? What does mm-hmm. that do for you? That's my response. Hey, they're, they're incapable of paying for the sins of those of somebody else's fathers. Um, I want to I want to read this piece uh, just a, a bit. Forgive me. A lot of reading today, but there's been some great stuff I've I've, I've been reading lately. Uh, this is from Ross Kaminsky at the American Spectator, and his piece is called the, the Cancer of Critical Race Theory. And he says this, he says he does say that he thinks America is awakening to, quote, the cancer that is critical race theory. And he says it should infuriate you that schools across the nation. Keep that in mind. Our, our audience knows it's not just brutally these sort of Tony New York schools. It's public schools across the nation, places like Iowa. It should infuriate you that schools across the nation are telling some kids that other kids are evil or that they themselves are evil for things over which they have and never had and never will have control, such as the melanin content of one's skin or the particular shape of one's eyes, and for the distinctly un-American practice of teaching that free speech, critical thinking, and questioning authority are simply indications of one's own irredeemable privilege. And he ends by saying, the problem is that even this initial national, national awakening is very, very late. We're in the midst of a stage four societal cancer. Critical race theory has metastasized from Harvard outward through other universities and from there into almost every other internal organ of our nation, from businesses to governments to schools to everywhere you look. So that brings me to the question that you mentioned when we started. 
what's next? What do we do? You did, you did the parents at Brearley and, and everyone else a favor by not, not, get, not staying quiet about it, by, yeah. by going public. So what, what is next in fighting the stage four societal cancer? Well, I, let me say first, I, I 100% agree with what you just read. This is, this is terrifying what has happened. I've had a lot of people reach out to me that grew up in uh, you know, Soviet Union or, or communist Eastern Europe that had saying, but you know, we, we left there to come to America. We've seen this movie being played before. This is terrifying what's going on. And we never thought this could happen here. And, and it is. And it's not just critical race theory in schools. It, it's, it's beyond schools. It's the cancel culture. It, it's the whole you know, woke religion. Uh, it, it is incredibly scary. I think if we don't fix it, we go down a very, very dark and scary path. I mean, uh, you know, we, we end the enlightenment. I think the country cracks up eventually. I don't know when. Um, what do we do? You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out. Look, I, I've been I promised a lot of people who reach out to me. I would continue to speak out on this because I, I believe in it and I will. Um, and I'm going to join FAIR and get involved in FAIR, which you mentioned. Um, to, seriously, I've had people people, you know, encourage me to start a school in New York City. And that's something I'm seriously mm-hmm. thinking about. But, you know, the bigger issue is this. We don't solve, in my view, we do not solve the school issue until we solve the cancel culture issue. Too many parents are too fearful to speak up. And you mentioned, you know, Coca-Cola may be reversing um, themselves a little bit on this after, you know, the Georgia and, and baseball all-star game incident. Uh, such cowardice generally in the corporate boardrooms. In, in these you know school school boardrooms and administrations, but just such cowardice in these corporate boardrooms to cower to the you know the woke Twitter mob here, that has to stop. We need some courageous CEOs and business leaders to say, look, we recognize that our employees are going to have some different opinions on things. Some of them might be controversial. We we acknowledge that some of those opinions in the day and age we live in are going to wind up on Twitter and in social media, and we will not. Terminate them for their views. We will not, uh, you know, penalize them for their views because they are preventing parents. I've heard this so many times in the last few weeks in these hundreds of emails. They are preventing parents from speaking out on behalf of their children and on behalf of their children's education. So that has to stop. I think we have to solve the cancel culture issue. This is a huge issue. This is not just schools. This is not just critical race theory. This is this, you know, anti-intellectual illiberalism, Marxism, we're going down that path uh, in, 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 in so many different scary ways. I don't have the solutions, all of them. I don't, you know, most of them. Uh, but we need to talk about this. You know, again, I said this earlier, you know, democracy, we, we, we've been led to believe in the media lately that, you know, what is democracy? Democracy is all about how many people vote, right? And that's why there's such issues over, over who can vote and, and voting, you know, registration and restrictions and stuff like that. That's not what democracy, that's not what democracy works if people vote. I think it's two things. It's and I wrote this in the letter. You have to have wise and virtuous leaders. And I think of both political parties, we have very few wise and virtuous leaders. And I wrote that in the context of really being the training ground for these leaders. If they don't learn the education, they're not going to be that. Um, and that's scary. And the other thing, you know, for democracy to work, you have to be willing to have discussions of these issues. Again, race, COVID, guns, immigration you know, all these issues, climate change, that we're not allowed to discuss. You have to be able to discuss them. So somehow, and, you know, look, media polarization, you know, is a lot of this, um, which I don't know how to solve. Um, but 
if you don't, if you're not willing to discuss these important issues, democracy doesn't work. And that's, I, I'm really scared. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we have you know, made a little dent. I don't think the dam is broken here on critical race theory, but I think we're starting finally to get people to speak up. And, and I'm hopeful we make a dent there and, and this movement continues. But these are bigger issues that we are completely forgetting, losing, destroying, you know, toppling statues of the foundations and principles of this country. And again, that's not to say there aren't stains on this. You know, Thomas Jefferson's controversial and he should be and he should be taught it that way. But that doesn't mean you ignore the Declaration of Independence. That is the founding principle of this country. And we should strive to meet it. And maybe we failed in a lot of ways in our history, but to not teach it and to lose those founding principles. Sorry, I'm preaching here, but to lose those founding principles, that's what's happening. And, and, and that's really, really scary, the path we're, we're headed down, I think. Yeah, it certainly is. No, I agree. As it's Mitch McConnell, he, he was out there just saying, and it was great. I, I was happy to see him object to the 1619 project, which has been yeah. totally discredited being yeah. taught in schools. Now, Nicole Hannah-Jones has been given um, a, a journalism professorship at UNC. She Yes, they give her a Pulitzer Prize, which a bunch of scholars, black and white, have demanded be pulled back, be, be revoked because the 1619 project is so non-factual. It is so counterfactual. Yeah. And she's totally gotten away with it. Now, instead of having the, the prize taken away, they're elevating her to a journalism professor right. at UNC. Anyway, McConnell came out and said, voters didn't ask for this. There is no mandate to teach our children that America is inherently evil. That mm -hmm. Seems like something that should have been run by us before we innocently sent them back. I wrote this in the letter, and I'll say it here. We, this country will not survive teaching our children to hate its own, our own country and to hate its history. Right? No other country in the world does that, and that is what we are doing. We will simply not survive as a country. I don't know what happens. We break up, civil war. You know, I don't know. Right? I don't think anyone can predict that. But I'm, I'm unfortunately confident in saying if we teach our children to hate our own country and its history, we will not survive. Or this way of life, you know, this foundation of freedom and liberty and prosperity and equal opportunity, not equal outcome, equal opportunity, which has been the beacon for the rest of the world for 250 years, right? And, and yes, we haven't always lived up to it, but we have been the beacon of these principles for 250 years. If we teach our children to hate our own country and hate its history, we won't survive. And our way of life will, will not survive. And, and that's terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. I do want to say to people, go to fairforall.org, fairforall.org. And you will see a lot of faces there that you know and love, like Barry Weiss, like Glenn Lowry, like Coleman Hughes, um, like Eli Steele, John McWhorter, who's coming on the show this week, and so on. Uh, Daryl Davis, all there together, me, I'm there, trying to fight back against this and try to make it easier for you to connect with other parents in your schools or businesses or elsewhere who are silently objecting but don't know how to come come out with it publicly, you know, for fear of being canceled or punished. So that is one of our core missions. Go just check it out. I'm not, I don't make any money off of this. This is not a money-making organization. We're just trying to, it's a, it's a group of people trying to, you know, fight for reason and, and wellness in the country. Uh, so I, I've become a, you know, a preacher for them. I, I want to proselytize about them. 
And we're just getting our act together too, or it's going to grow and it's going to get better organized and all that. But it's a place to start. And I think you'd be amazing. We need just, we need millions more just like you. So, yeah, so the founder uh, of my, I've I've met a bunch of times now uh, online and in person, and and we're talking about how I can get involved because I absolutely want to get involved. Good. And and people at home can do it too. I will say just one other thought. When I was still um, at, at our boys, boys school, and I don't know, I, I, I tend to think that the schools are not necessarily honestly searching for parent feedback. I don't know. I think they're like, my experience has been the schools are totally devoted to this ideology and are going to lean into it because they think yeah. it's what's, quote, right. But if you think your school is genuinely curious about or maybe fearful about losing a significant portion of its parent body, one of the things I think could work potentially is to get an outside person to come in, sort of like an auditor, uh, to have private meetings with parents who shall go nameless in the ultimate report about how they actually feel. I really would love to see honest schools do this. I thought of it because of what uh, what my what my former employer, Fox News, did in the wake of the Roger Ailes allegations. You know, um, they they brought in Paul Weiss, an outside law firm. Doesn't have to be a law firm, but women who would never go in and speak to Roger Ailes's human resources department, right? Never, because they knew it was going to happen, did go to Paul Weiss once they realized and were reassured that it truly was an independent lane where they could say how they actually felt what actually happened to them. I think this could work at the school level for, for and it would give school boards cover because a lot of school boards don't actually want to do this crap, but they feel pressured. Yeah. You bring somebody in, you take the temperature of the parents without a name attached to it. It's just somebody, you know, like it, you only get invited if you actually are a parent at the school. So they know it's legit. Uh, and you say how you actually feel, and then they'll get a real temperature of how their parent body feels about what they're doing. And if you do that and you get a negative result on this indoctrination and you proceed with it, you reap what you sow. You see what happens to your parent body within the next three years. Can I, um, I'll add something if you don't mind. Um, yeah. I had someone reach out to a friend that's on the board of a prominent uh, West Coast Bay Area school, private school. Um, and he is in the process, and he's very confident of getting the board to agree to have a school-wide Zoom on this topic. And he would like myself and Paul Rossi to participate. Um, so th- these conversations are starting, I think. And, and who the hell is going to stand up and say what you and Paul Rossi say? They're all going to be scared shitless in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I, I you know, I, I think look, <laughs> this this issue is a broader issue, right? Obviously, it gets a lot of attention on you know. Uh, on the right wing on conservatives and Republicans. We, we cannot win this issue unless it crosses over and, and education crosses over. You have to yes. get you know, you know the centrist. You have to get the moderate left. Look, we've lost the woke to religion. Like it's gone. Whatever that percent, 10%, whatever it is, right? New York, San Francisco is higher. But this is an issue that can really cross the divide here. And I, and I think so because everybody cares about their kids' education. And I have, I think you said the same thing. I have heard from a lot of parents at really privately that you would consider very, very liberal. And again, they may not agree with my definition of systemic racism, but they agree with a lot. And for sure, they agree with that we need to talk about this and they are against indoctrination and they are for free speech. And so I think, you know, there's a much bigger audience for this. And I'm going to say audience. I mean, there's a much bigger movement potentially than, than just, you know, just conservatives here. And it has to be because we don't win. I don't think we win with just conservatives here. Um, no, it has to cross not. over. And I'm, I'll be very honest. I mean, I'm politically homeless um, in this. So mm-hmm. I, I really think that, that the parents are starting to, 
realize, I think they've seen what's going on. I think a lot of schools aren't as far gone as the New York City schools, but they're seeing this now and saying, this has to stop. And we're the canary. We're the canary in the coal mine. What 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 yeah. happens here is coming. It's it's already there, but it's it's going to come full force. There's a recognition of that. And so, look, if a, if a you know if a fancy West Coast school is willing to, and again, I don't know if this is happening, but but he seemed pretty confident that they could get the board behind this uh, and at least having the discussion about this. That that is a first step. Uh, but but again, if we don't solve the cancel culture issue, that too many people are afraid to speak up, it doesn't get solved. Yeah, and I think we have right. to solve that. But but it, but that schools are willing maybe now to have these conversations. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Andrew Gutman, good luck and good luck to your sweet daughter. Sounds like sounds like she doesn't need it. But uh, she's OK. Yeah, she's OK. We, we, our country needs it. Our schools need it. But thank you very much. Don't miss Monday's show. Go right now. Subscribe to this show. Download Give me a rating, five stars if you feel generous, and a review, please. I'm still reading them all. I've read every single one. Yes, I have, and I read all the ones that start now with, you say you read every review, so I'm writing this one. I see you. I see you all. Uh, But don't miss Monday's show because we've got one of my heroes on, John McWhorter. He's a professor at Columbia. He's totally brilliant. He's fearless. He's Glenn Lowry's pal. They talk about race a lot on The Glenn Show and other programs, and he's been debating it for a super long time in very smart but easy-to-understand ways. And we're going to get into all of this stuff with him. You will not be sorry. You will not be sorry you gave this time over to John McWhorter. This is an hour and 15 minutes of your life that is going... It's you Basically, you want to be doing this rather than cleaning the house. You could do both. Rather than going online shopping, don't do that. Just listen to John, okay? You're welcome and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.